The U.S. Navy's elite SEALs are without a doubt among the world's premier warriors. Is Chester still in the room this morning? No, okay. We have a real live retired SEAL. He's about, somebody help me, Freddie? 82. And I think I shared this in a sermon not too long ago because it fit too, but it wasn't many months ago some guy in the grocery store tried to take Chester's wallet because he looked like a little old man that he could rob in the line at the grocery store. And before this 20-something-year-old kid knew it, the guy's 82. Are you with me? Are you tracking? Uh, Before this guy knew it, Chester had put him on the ground and had him by the throat. And he got his wallet back. At any rate, the SEALs are without a doubt among the world's premier warriors. Their training is some of the most intense and thorough of any of the world's soldiers, no matter the nation. From swimming five and a half miles in the ocean to underwater demolition skills to parachuting from crazy heights in the dark and opening only uh, much, much closer to the ground, to lethal skills in hand-to-hand combat as well as possessing the latest weaponry. All of this executed with the tightest of teamwork. The tightest of teamwork. That's the focus on the SEALs I want you to catch this morning. The SEALs are not only tough, they're smart. And they're a constant threat to our enemies. Just going back to Desert Storm, which has been quite a while now, the SEALs conducted during Desert Storm some 200 missions without a single casualty. And perhaps even more amazing in all their history, they've never left a wounded team member behind. They simply won't do it. Now, there's been some killed that they've had to leave behind, but they don't leave a wounded comrade behind. That's the teamwork that they're all about. Of course, now they're being called on perhaps more than ever. They've expanded their force, and, uh, as, as, as have other special forces. And in the war against terror, we, uh, we see it left and right. It's, just, it's daily that almost that missions are happening to protect us. And again, these teams depend on the tightest of teamwork. The Christian life and the life of the church collectively is an ongoing battleground for souls, isn't it? We could turn to Ephesians 6 where we're told that our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against every, all, the, all the spiritual authorities in heavenly places. And we're told to be strong in the Lord, to put on his armor because the devil is scheming to take us out of the battle. Now, the war has been won if we know Christ. Amen? But the battle still rages. There's still battles to fight and win for his glory and win in his power and win by his spirit in all of our lives and in the life of the church collectively. Why do we so often then live as islands and just walk right by our brothers and sisters who've been injured in the fray, who've been sidelined by sin? Maybe we would respond, well, I mean, it's not really any of my business. Oh, really? I hope you feel differently about that little common excuse and phrase we mutter a lot. It's just none of my business. 
Hope you feel differently about that by the time we leave today. In many cases, perhaps we just don't know enough about one another to be in any position to be able to help them out. And so time and time again, we leave our wounded down in the field of battle, content to walk away, content to just look out for number one. And then when we're here together, gathered like this, having a great morning at church and worship, we still wonder why we're so weak and ineffective and having an eternal influence in our community and ultimately in our world. I want to talk to you this morning about fulfilling the law of Christ. We're going to be looking at our text that we read earlier, Galatians 5, verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 6. We're, going to, we're not going to read through it all again now. We're going to just kind of take it in pieces as we walk through. Here's the truth I want you to take home. As we think about fulfilling the law of Christ, here's essentially what that means and how that works. Jesus' indwelling spirit will keep us humble, first of all, and will lead us to humbly help each other obey Jesus. If you want to know what it means to fulfill the law of Christ, how that dynamic plays itself out in the church of Jesus Christ, then it's, it's, it's this right here, Jesus' indwelling spirit. Jesus' Spirit living in me, living in you, will keep us humble and will lead us to humbly help each other obey Jesus. Now, I want us to think about this and unpack this text by seeing two main thoughts this morning. The first one. You see, God's freeing grace to us in Christ. Remember, we've been talking about that in Galatians. We're in the middle of a series through the book of Galatians called Radical Grace, the only real kind, if you're just joining us for the first time today. We're glad you're here. We're in the middle of this letter, and we're nearing the end now of our study of this letter. Back in chapter 5, we talked a whole lot, and it was fun, and it's awesome to stop and think about God's freeing grace in Christ. Galatians 5.1 says it was for freedom that Christ set us free, so don't let anybody ever enslave you again. God's freeing grace to us in Christ and his indwelling spirit that graciously empowers us to live like Jesus, first of all this morning, gives me a new perspective on me. I want you to see a new perspective on me. Now for you, that's You, are you with me? You have to say it, you have to say it, right, for it to apply. A new perspective on me. We're going to see this in verses 22 to 26 and also chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. It's a gospel perspective. Let me go ahead and tell you. It's a gospel perspective. It's how you see yourself if you get the gospel. When you look at yourself through the lens of the gospel, this is how you see yourself. It's a grace perspective perspective, when grace is filling your mind and your heart from the gospel, then this is how you think about self. Here's what it says, chapter 5, verse 22, down through verse 26. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruits of that the Spirit of God produces in the one in whom he lives, the believer in Jesus Christ. And against such things, there is no law. When the Spirit of God is working in your life and giving you this kind of fruit, there's no law outside of you that stands and condemns you. There's nothing that can oppose you because you are fulfilling the law of God. Those who belong 
to Christ Jesus, verse 24, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you want to just glance back up to verses 19 to 21, you can see what the the passions of the flesh, the desires of the flesh are all about. The nasty list that so often has its way in our lives. But those who belong to Christ have crucified all of that. Since, verse 25, we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We've been given life by the Spirit, now let's keep in step by the Spirit. Last time we were in Galatians, we began, we stopped right there, and we talked a little bit about what that looks like. But now the text continues, and so does the discussion about what it means to walk by the Spirit, to, to, to keep in step with, with the Spirit. First of all, in verse 26, here's what it means. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And then skip to chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else for each one should carry their own load. You see, if we've trusted in God's radical grace in Jesus, if we've come to know the freedom for which Christ set us free, verse 25 says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We're looking at a new perspective on me, a gospel perspective on me, a grace perspective on me. And these verses are telling us that the the daily steps of our lives ought to be filled with the fruits of the Spirit. What does that look like? Well, if that's the case, if Jesus lives in us by His Spirit, then we have a new perspective on ourselves. We think differently about ourselves. And as verse 26 says, here's the way it should go. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Verses 22 and 23 told us that the fruit of the Spirit is what? What's the very first thing? The one that sort of is the umbrella over all the rest of the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. What is the opposite of love? Hate, okay. What's at the root of hate? Huh? Pride. Let us not become conceited. That's why Paul goes right there after he says, here's the fruits of the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, don't be conceited. What is our default? I mean, if you just get up in the morning and let it go, you just kick it in spiritual neutral and coast, which, by the way, that's not possible. Neutral means you're going backwards. But what's your default? What, what, where, where do you roll downhill to? I'm the most conceited person I know. And you're the most conceited person you know, whether you know it or not. By the way, the one who thinks they're humble most certainly is not humble. Right? And so that's what Paul is is telling us here. He's just kind of assuming it. You know, when we we read verse 25 and he says, keep in step with the Spirit, and the next thing that that he writes is, let's not become conceited. We're kind of like, where'd that come from? I thought we were talking about this, this cool thing about living in the Spirit and all the good fruits of the Spirit. Why do you now hammer me about being conceited? Because he knows you are. He knows I'm the most conceited person I know. And he knows that the very opposite of walking in the Spirit is what? Walking in the flesh, one of the prime roots of which is, root sins of which is 
conceit. You see, if it's all by the grace of God, and it is, then we aren't the focus of our own lives anymore. He is. And as we'll see later, others are. Suddenly my life becomes not about me. It becomes about him and showing others how much he loves them by how I love them. And life is just that simple, and that's the boiled-down version of the Christian life. You've got it. Go get it, right? When grace takes over, when Jesus' Spirit is living in you, self-absorption will no longer be the norm. Tim Keller summarizes uh, about this verse, and he says, So Paul is saying in verse 26 that both superiority and inferiority are a form of deceit. Both thinking you're better than and not thinking you're as good as. Both are a form of conceit in the heart. Both the superior and the inferior person are self-absorbed. Both are trying to gain worth through competition at the expense of others. Both want to gain an identity by beating and surpassing others. Both want to be proud and want to be superior. You see what conceit is really all about is the very heart of the gospel that we've been seeing in Galatians. It's about me standing before God on my own two feet and earning my own righteousness before him. It's about works, salvation, not taking the gift that he's given through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. Verse 26 is essentially saying, do not let your hunger for honor make you either despise or envy people. You see, the gospel creates a new self-image, a new perspective on me. It humbles me before anyone, telling me I am a sinner saved only by grace also. But it also emboldens me before everyone, telling me that I am loved and honored by the only eyes in the universe that really count, namely God the Father through Jesus the Son. You see, Paul says the Christian life is simply not about comparisons to others. It's not about me, and it's not about how I stack up against you or you stack up against me. That discussion's over for the Christian, or at least it should be. It's about minding my own little red wagon, as my grandma used to say to us grandkids when we were not doing the same. And shortly before, she would go cut a hickory to make sure you got back to your little red wagon and left everybody else's alone. And parents, that's still a good, effective way to make sure your kid's minding their own little red wagon. Just word of parenting advice there. It's about minding my own little red wagon in the light of God's radical grace to me in Jesus. That's why he says in chapter 6, verses 3 and 5, here's what these verses are all about. It's about me minding my own business, my own life before God, and not living a life of comparison to others. 6.3, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Mind your own little red wagon. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own Lord, here's the deal. None of us are anything but the happy beneficiaries of God's grace in Jesus. Don't think you're something when you're not. Paul says, you know, you deceive yourself when you do that. Because and, and, the bottom line is we never are. 
We're only those. Somebody said, I'm just a beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. A buddy of mine told a guy that one time, and he didn't think he was a beggar. And he didn't need Jesus or the bread that my buddy said he was going to give him. But the truth of the matter is, whether we realize it, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we are all beggars before holy God in need of the bread of life through Jesus Christ. He paid it all. All to him I owe. He gives all the grace, all the salvation, and he must get all the glory in my life and in yours. Because of that, we must relate to others based on the reality that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And even if I'm called to help another who's struggling, which is what we're about to talk about, I am to do so with a humble and thankful heart, knowing that anything I have and any help I may bring to a person's life is a gift of God's grace in Jesus to me for them. Amen? You see, the gospel perspective on me is that I'm a beggar telling others where the bread can be found. The new perspective that that grace gives me is I'm humble, always humble before God, always giving Him the glory and honor, always exalting Jesus for what He did for me and what He continues to do in my life by His Spirit. He gets all the glory when we stay humble and thankful, and that is how we should live. Never thinking ourselves to be anything before God or before man. Not living the life in the, in the comparison of the comparison game. You ever stopped and thought about how much you compare yourself to others? This is the time to do that if you haven't right now. If you just, 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 just replay the week. How much energy did you burn? How much worry did you, did, you, did you put out over how you stack up to somebody else? Flip side, have you ever thought about how you play the comparison game in the other direction? You see, that's the inferiority side. You're, you're, you're feeling like you're not as good as over here. But then on the other hand, think about how all the times when you look down on, you think you're better than. I mean, I mean do, do I really believe in those moments? Do I really believe I'm, that person over there needs Jesus more than me? I mean, that's what I'm saying. When I let myself think that way and feel that way in here. And Paul says, it's not true. The ground's level at the foot of the cross. And the first thing the gospel should give you and me is a new perspective on me. And then this new perspective on me enables me to have a new approach to you. A new perspective on me, a gospel perspective on me allows me to have a gospel approach to you. It's a grace approach to you. In order to have a grace approach to you, I've got to have a grace perspective on me. In order to live a gospel in a gospel approach to you and as we relate one to another, I've got to have a grace perspective on me. If I do, and I, and I am, what does it all look like? Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and also verse 6. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ nevertheless verse 6 the one who receives instruction in the word 
should share in all good things with their instructor. Now, I'm going to bar up an outline for these, these verses from John MacArthur. A new approach to you. Three, three points I want you to see in, in these four or so verses. The first new thing, thing in this new approach to you is this. I exist to pick you up. We're going to talk about pick up, hold up, and build up. Okay? Pick up, hold up, and build up. That's what we're to do in relation to one another. That's how we're to approach one another. That's what the gospel does. If I get the gospel and how it applies to me, then the way I'm going to live is I'm going to pick you up, hold you up, and build you up, and you're going to do the same back. First of all, from verse 1, pick up. Sometimes as we take this new gospel approach to one another, we've got to pick one another up. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, now you might read that and think, ha, that sounds like, I mean, we talk that way. I caught so-and-so doing so-and-so. Well, that's not what the language means here. If someone is caught as in entangled, as, as an animal in a snare, as a fox in a, in, in a trap is caught. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Some of your translations probably say here, you who, you who are spiritual, which is probably a more literal translation, but when you and I read that, we get confused, don't we? And we misunderstand the language, and we begin to think, okay, so he's talking to the ones who were spiritual in the church, not everybody. He's talking to those who have it all together. He's talking to the, you know, he must be talking to the deacons. I mean, obviously, he's not talking to the preacher, but he must be talking to the deacons or, or you know, the older people in the church, something. No. That's why the NIV is a good translation, thought for thought. You who live by the Spirit. What's the whole context of everything we've seen coming into chapter 6? The, chapter, the end of chapter 5, second half of chapter 5, is all about doing what? Walking by the Spirit. So he's just taking off on that. Chapter 6 is a continuation of thought. He's saying, you who live by the Spirit, you're no, you're no more spiritual than anybody else. Just at this given time, this given moment, when a brother's ensnared in sin, when his foot's in a trap of sin, he can't get loose. You who are in the moment walking by the Spirit, the Spirit's controlling you, you're in obedience to Jesus by the power of the Spirit within. You need to restore that person, but do it gently. And watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. That word restore... It's the word that was used to speak of setting a dislocated bone back into its place. How many, how many of you have ever had anything dislocated? I never have. Okay, give me a testimony, Joe. Does it hurt? The dislocation hurts, right? The setting back into place, how does that feel? Worse. But then what happens? Relief. You got it? Something's dislocated, it's out of joint, it's not going to work correctly, it's going to hurt. And you can just leave it like that. Hope it eventually works its way back in, but it doesn't work, does it? Never, never just pops back in. I mean, maybe. Some of you double-jointed people. But I mean, chances are it's not going to happen. It's got to be put back in place. And if you thought the dislocation hurt, that really hurts. All at once. Intense. And the moment it gets back in place, or at least moments later, is that fair, Joe? Moments later. Relief. 
what this word for restore means. You see, we are to pick up our brother and sister who gets tangled up in temptation and falls into a pattern of sin. And that means going to that person gently with the goal of helping free them from the snare that they are in. It means helping get their dislocated hearts back in the right place by confronting them about their sin and reminding them of the way of Christ. That will hurt in the moment. But relief will come almost immediately when your heart is relocated and put back in place. And here's the question. Do I love you enough to actually do that? And do you love me enough to come to me and say, this, you, you don't even see it. You can't even feel it anymore. But your foot is caught in a trap. You are in, in chain to this Sin, And I love you enough to come and tell you that that is sin and we need to work together to get you out of it. If you use the, the analogy of, of a SEAL team, if, if one of their team members goes down in battle, what do they do? Do they just throw their guns down? And they, I mean, they're so focused on getting that guy, they throw their guns down, they don't look around, they don't pay any attention, they just run headlong straight for that guy and, and get him and hope to get out. Is that how they, is that how they approach that situation? That's their ultimate goal is to get him and get out. No. With even greater care than before he went down, weapons poised for action, eyes and ears wide open, they carefully make their way to their wounded comrades so they can get him out. They're very cautious in how they approach this situation. The goal is no more get killed. No more go down. No more get ensnared. Nobody else on the team falls prey to the same stuff. And so with great care and great watchfulness for my own heart as I approach another person to to help them out of a snare of sin, I must be careful and watch, as the text says, lest I too, lest I too be tempted. You know, this is the business Jesus has always been about. John chapter 11 Verses, or excuse me, verse, chapter 8, verses 7 to 11. Remember this beautiful story? The scene was this. Jesus was standing around somewhere in the temple, and these men dragged this half-naked lady into his presence and throw them down at, her, at his feet, standing there in front of her. They said, we caught her in the very act of adultery. They're trying to trap Jesus. They tell him, we know what the law of Moses says. What do you say? Jesus bends down. He writes on the ground for a few minutes. They keep asking him, what's your answer? And he's just down there scribbling in the dirt, not saying a word, not answering, just letting time go. Verse 7, they kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. <laughs> Even these proud, arrogant Pharisees knew, and the elders, older knew better than the younger, just how sinful they were. Until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go 
and sin no more. Jesus gently relocated a heart that had been dislocated by sin. And what an example that is. I mean, this woman was caught red-handed in the act. And yet Jesus comes along and he says, you're forgiven. Now go relocated and send no more. Don't get dislocated again. Don't get your heart dislocated. Out of joint, out of whack, out of sync with me again. Just as Jesus did, we're to love one another enough that we are willing to pick each other up when needed. Pick each other up, even out of sin. Secondly, not only we're to pick up, we're to hold up. Verse 2, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. The word here for burdens, it refers to heavy, hard-to-carry loads. By the way, if... You may be confused, but if you were paying attention a while ago, uh, when we were looking uh, at, at the other verses, verses 3 through 5, and in the first point, we were talking about how we're, we're to kind of mind our own little red wagon. It talked about there how we're to, uh, well, let's just read it. It says, um, we should test our own actions, verse 4, um, verse 5, each one should carry their own load. Now we're reading the thing that says we're to carry each other's load. Which is it? Well, the words are different. And the picture is this, carry each other's load, verse Five has to do with, the picture is you're not to be comparing yourself all the time like we talked about. It's not about you and another person, how you compare to other people. It's about your little red wagon and you are to take care of your own load, your own daily duties, your own daily walk before the Lord. This word is the word uh, that talks about heavy, hard to carry loads. And in this regard, we're to carry each other's burdens Paul says. We're commanded, carry each other's burdens. Carry each other's hard to carry, heavy, almost unable to bear loads. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. You know, temptation is a heavy load to carry, isn't it? Isn't it? John MacArthur says, to be picked up from sin is not to be freed from temptation. You know, I can pick a brother up from sin. I can, I can, you, you can come to me and, and set me free from the trap of sin I'm in, but, but none of us are stupid enough to think that I won't be tempted to the same sin again. You won't be tempted to the same sin that we got trapped in again, right? In fact, that's the probably, that, that right there is probably the very sin we are most tempted by. To be picked up from sin is not to be freed from temptation. Temptation may not go away. So you have to not only pick your brother up, but you have to hold him up. What does that involve? Well, it involves prayer. It involves fellowship, that fellowship of checking in. That, it involves accountability. That's kind of what it means to hold somebody up, to hang in there with them for a time as they grow. You don't just set them free from the trap and say, okay, I'll see you. Glad your leg's out of, the, out of the snare. Glad you're not tangled up in the, in the trap anymore. I'll see you next week. I'll talk to you next year. Have a good day. And check this out. When, whenever we do this, whenever we not only pick someone up, but then stay with them and hold them up, walk with them, pray with them, keep them accountable, love on them, helping them 
get up underneath that temptation, that load of temptation and bear it, help teaching them how to, how to get, a, get through that temptation, being the one they can call when they're most tempted to go get that drink they can't handle, being the one they can call when they're struggling with lust and it's about to overcome them and ruin their lives. They call you. You hang in there with them. You help them bear that load. When we do that, the Bible says, Paul says, we fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Well, very simply, as we've seen in chapter 5 and now 6, it's the law of love. Do you remember Galatians 5 verse 6? The only thing that counts for followers of Jesus Christ is faith expressing itself through love. In the Christian life, it's not about the religious stuff you do or the religious stuff you don't do. Paul says circumcision, uncircumcision, none of it means anything in Jesus. In Jesus, if you're in Christ, what matters is your faith in him that expresses itself through love. Through love. Galatians 5, 13 13 and 14, Paul says, do not use your freedom. You've got it, you're free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather do what? Rather be a law keeper? Rather get up in the morning and, 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 and run down all the Ten Commandments, make sure everything's in order. Go through your spiritual checklist, quiet time, yeah, I've got that. And just all this stuff, is that, is that what it says? Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. flesh. Rather serve one another humbly in, here's the magic word, love. For the, listen to this, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law. Jesus himself said in John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Love one another. That wasn't new. That, was, that, that, that came from love your neighbor as yourself. But then Jesus said, as I have loved you, and how did he love you? How did he love you? Okay, full stop. We got to deal with that. We don't know what the answer to that question is. We're in real trouble. How did Jesus love you? He did what? He died on the cross for you. As I have loved you, so you must love one another, Jesus says. He took loving my neighbor as myself to a whole other level. And understand, Jesus did not abolish the law or trash the law. He fulfilled it. And what that means is that the law of love, the law of Christ to which he calls us, goes straight to the heart. Just checking off the letter of the law doesn't cut it anymore with Jesus in following Christ. Loving others from the heart is required. And that's why we must, must have the Holy Spirit directing and empowering our lives. In, in, in Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus said, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for a minute, that sounds like works, doesn't it? But what's he getting at here? Well, he goes on. You've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And the Pharisees weren't murderers. The teachers of the law didn't murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. The Pharisees were righteous on that basis, at that level. Teachers of the law, they, they, they had that down. They were not under the judgment of the prohibition against murder. Actual murder. But here's the problem. Jesus says, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject 
to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Hello. What did you just say, Jesus? What I just said, Jesus says, is, you know, the, the Pharisees stay at this superficial, external level. What I'm telling you is, the heart of the law, even in the Old Testament, was about your heart. It wasn't just don't kill each other, don't want to kill each other. Don't hate each other. Don't look at somebody and call them a fool. Meaning, I wish you were dead, Raka. You're just, you're, 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 you're a useless piece of humanity. You shouldn't even be on the planet. Not even in your heart can you feel those things without sinning against God and breaking his holy law. We're in trouble, aren't we? And how do you think it is that we get the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees? How do you think it is that you and I can live a life where we don't hate in our hearts? It's only by walking by the Spirit, as we've been seeing in Galatians 5 and 6. It's the only way. Jesus goes beyond the letter of the law to call us to obey the very heart of the law. And without the power of the Holy Spirit, if we are not walking in the Spirit, such obedience is absolutely impossible. can't be done. Chuck Swindoll said, part of God's plan for lightening our load is to use the hands and backs of his people to help us carry the baggage or show us where we can unload it. You need one another. We need one another. We have to help each other carry our burdens. It's meant to work that way, and when it does, we fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of of love. We don't settle just for the externals. We go to the heart and we help each other obey Jesus from the heart. Thirdly, and finally on this, we pick each other up, we hold each other up, and then sixth, or thir- thirdly, we build each other up. Verse 6 of chapter 6. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the Word should share in all good things with their instructors. The Greek word here for share is the, is, is, the, is the word koinonia. What Paul is saying is that we are to share together in the things of truth that all flow out of the Word of God. He calls us to a mutual sharing of God's truth in the body of Christ. It's, it's, it's what we call, we use the big long word, discipleship and fellowship. What it is, it's, it's you and people who walk with Jesus, who know Jesus around you, you together in groups, at least a couple people, where you share the truth of God together, back and forth. How do you do that? Well, I don't know. I mean, just figure it out. It's, it's not, it's not, uh, there's not a prescription, right? You can do it a lot of different ways. Meet together once a week or once every other week for coffee. Call the person on the phone. Keep up via text on how things are going in each other's relationships with Jesus. The point is you're not just texting about the weather and about business. You're, you're talking about the things of God, the things of truth, things that matter, what it means to walk in the Spirit, how that works out in your daily lives and in your family specifically, in your marriage in particular, in your personal thought life, in your private behavior You help each other. You build each other up with the Word of God. It's simply living and loving relationships. Disciples making disciples. And I want to encourage you, if you don't have at least one relationship like this,
I want to encourage you, pray for the Lord to put you together with someone. And then be watching and listening as you relate to others in the body of Christ. And when you see the possibility, test it out. Try to get to know that person. See what God does between you. See if he'll develop that relationship. That's the way you can do it in a a one-on-one. Another way you can do it is show up for Sunday school at 10 o'clock. We have ready-made groups that you can fall into and share life with. It's an amazing thing. Been around hundreds of years. We call it Sunday school. And you should call it family. Amen? I'm not trying to guilt you into Sunday school. I'm trying to tell you this is how we work out. That's why we have Sunday school. We don't do it to just kill another hour. Say we had you here another hour on Sunday morning. You can't do this stuff in this room. You need to be in a small group around the Word where you can actually bat it back and forth, talk about it, talk about particular application, share prayer requests one with another. By the way, if you pray about a relationship with someone, God, God shows you the possibility, you pursue it, you, you end up hooking up, say, hey, let's go to coffee one day. A great tool to use, not that you need anything other than God's Word, but a great tool to help you in that way is a little book called Multiply. It's something I use personally. I'm using it right now with about half a dozen guys. We have a great time as we think about God's Word and the big picture of, of what God's up to in the world uh, through the little book called Multiply by Francis Chan. John MacArthur writes, Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Yes. Yes, you are. And for you, so are they. And we're all to be instruments of holiness in each other's lives. Like iron sharpening iron, as the Proverbs put it. That's real love for one another. You see, this new perspective on me and this new approach to you is what serving one another humbly in love is all about. The new approach, the new perspective on me keeps me humble and the new approach to you causes me to serve you in love. C.S. Lewis said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. It's not about us. Once we come to Christ and get all we need for eternity, hello, and we have. Ephesians 1, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's no longer about me. It's about his glory through my life of love to others. Because of God's radical grace in Jesus and his indwelling spirit, our lives are now all about Jesus and other people. We live to love others the way Jesus loved us in the power of the Spirit so that Jesus and his Father who sent him get all the glory. Jesus' indwelling Spirit will keep us humble and will lead us to humbly help each other obey Jesus. Chuck Swindoll says, you want to know if the Spirit is moving in a congregation? You want to know if the Spirit of God is moving in a church? Four words. Look for burdens shared. Does that not sum up what we've seen in Scripture? If the Spirit of God is working in us, we will carry one another's burdens and will fulfill the law of Christ. Do you need to humble yourself and admit that you're struggling and need a brother or sister's help in dealing with sin or discouragement or temptation? 
Do you need to confess arrogance and a conceited heart that makes you provoke and or envy others? What do you see among your immediate family and friends? Do you see anybody who's bogged down with anxiety or discouragement or patterns of sin that have enslaved them? The question for you, if you see it, is what are you going to do about it? What will you do to pick them up? to hold them up, to build them up in a relationship of love that may spare them from years of pain and suffering in the chains of sin. What are you going to do? You see, it's your business. It's my business. Because God, through, by, when he saved us and put us in the body of Christ, made us members one of another. He put us all in the body of Christ. And I'll guarantee you, if I were to get my leg caught in an animal trap out in the woods when I'm hiking around sometime, and the teeth of that thing were to be to biting in my ankle and blood's coming out and, and it's pressing against the bones in my ankle, every fiber of my physical being would be saying, it's our business to do whatever it takes to get ankle out of the trap. And that's how we ought to love one another. We ought to respond just that seriously, just that intensely, and free one another. Jesus' indwelling spirit will keep us humble, realizing it's all grace. We are only the happy beneficiaries of God's grace in Jesus. And Jesus' indwelling spirit will lead us to humbly help each other obey him. That's what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. That's what it means to fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray together.